Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. Money. Money. We're talking about money at the beginning of the new year. Money. Why are we talking about money? Because the Bible talks about money. Not a little bit, not some, not a lot, but a whole lot. In fact, other than God himself, there's no more common referred to topic in the Bible than money. Why? Well, because as Bob Dylan said, money doesn't talk, it swears. <laughs> money, money tells the truth about us. What we do with our money, how we make our money, how we spend our money, it is the great revealer. It tells the truth about our lives. Money doesn't talk, it swears. So we began last Sunday by looking at what Moses had to say about money as he gave the law from God to Israel in their formative years there in the Sinai experience. Uh, Today we're going to look at the prophets and money. The Hebrew prophets, what do they have to say about money? Again, they have a whole lot to say about it. In the Bible we have the books of 16 Old Testament prophets. That's from Isaiah through Malachi, 16 prophets. And these Hebrew prophets, they weren't preachers as we think of preachers. And they weren't political activists. They were poets of all things. That's really what they were. They were poets. That is, they employed artistic language to deliver a message to Israel from Yahweh. They composed and performed their poems in the name of the Lord. And they brought these messages to the people. Now, what was the agenda of the Hebrew prophets? Well, they called Israel to integrity to wholeness of being, to live a life that was not contradictory. You know, sometimes people use religion to build walls to compartmentalize their lives, to separate. They build walls of separation between their sacred life and their secular life, right? So it's Sunday morning, this, this, is our, this is our sacred stuff, this is our spiritual stuff, this is our God time, we're doing our God stuff. And then come Monday, uh, you know, we're out there and it's a different life for us because now we're not, we're not doing the God thing, we're not doing religious things, we're out there doing our secular thing. And sometimes people use religion to build walls, to divide their life into sacred and secular. That's when the prophets show up and use their poems as a battering ram to knock down those walls. And they say, ah, there's no, there's no such thing as a division between sacred, sacred and secular. It's all sacred. And you can't divide your life up. You can't, you can't say, you can't divide your life up into Sunday and Monday and live differently. And whenever the people of God started to do that, that's when the prophets showed up with their poetic battering rams and began to knock those walls down. The prophets thunder, there is no such thing as secular. It's all sacred, so live with integrity. Live on Monday what you say you believe on Sunday. Amen. Israel was called by God to be unique among the nations. They were God's 
chosen. They were special. They're, they're called of God to be, well, they, they were called to be a priest to all the nations. They were, they were a royal priesthood. They were a priestly nation. Their task really was, their vocation was to embody what it looks like to worship the true and living God and to live according to His will. Israel was to be characterized by fidelity and worship. That was the first thing. You'll have no other gods. That was the first commandment of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. No other gods. You're going to worship God alone. And then out of, out of that proper worship, out of that fidelity of worship to the living God, they would then know how and be formed in a way that they could treat their neighbor with justice. And so those were the two things that were to characterize Israel, fidelity in worship of the living God and just treatment of neighbor. And the Hebrew prophets would not tolerate the separation of worship and justice. Often we can try to separate that. That happens a lot in our life where we say, okay, uh, I believe right and I worship right and that's all that matters. No, the prophets say uh, just because you believe and worship right doesn't mean you can treat your neighbor wrong. You have to have integrity. You have to have wholeness. It all ha- you can't just have right worship. You also have to have just treatment of neighbor. That's what the prophets are about. For the prophets, it wasn't enough for Israel just to worship the true God. Israel also had to exhibit justice in their society. And so the prophets talk mostly about justice. And when they talk about justice, they're mostly talking about money. That's mostly what they mean by justice is there must be a just economics if they're going to be the people of God, if they're going to bear the name of Yahweh. So justice for the Hebrew prophets was mostly about just economics, mostly about what people did with their money. If Israel then began to congratulate themselves on being God's people but failed to embody just economics, the prophets would say things like, mm, no, you, you are an unfaithful wife to Yahweh. You've become like your sister Sodom. Ezekiel said it this way. This was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. Now, the Hebrew prophets were not against wealth and prosperity. Don't think that. Uh, That was not... They were not... They didn't have a vision of Israel living in some sort of enforced poverty. That was not at all what they thought. In fact, they saw prosperity as part of human flourishing and part of God's blessing upon Israel. What the prophets were against was economic injustice, both personal and systemic. That's what they were. They weren't against prosperity. They were for it. They believed that that was God's will. But... It had to come in the form of economic justice, both personally, individually, and also systemically as a society, as a nation. For the comfortable rich who ignored the plight of the poor, and that's what, what, that's what happens oftentimes. People would get separated more and more and more from uh, maybe the masses in certain societies that are in poverty. Uh, they, they just close their minds off and they ignore that. For those that do that, the prophets were a disruptive force. Again, the prophets aren't against prosperity, 
but the prophets won't allow you to enjoy your prosperity if you're ignoring Lazarus at your gate begging for the crumbs from your table. Prophets aren't against your prosperity, but if in your prosperity you're ignoring Lazarus, they're going to show up and bug you. They're going to irritate you. They're going to call you to rethink, to repent, to begin to live a different kind of life, to begin to live with what they understood as integrity. Well, this, the message of Martin Luther King was entirely both informed by and consistent with uh, the message of the Hebrew prophets. In 1953, Martin Luther King said, Money in its proper place is a worthwhile and necessary instrument for a well-rounded life. But when it is projected to the status of a god, it becomes a power that corrupts and an instrument of exploitation. Of course, that's, com- that's exactly what the Hebrew prophets said. And then the culmination of the Hebrew prophetic tradition is Jesus himself who carries on that same message. We'll get to more about what Jesus has to say about money next week. But, but Jesus says that, in, in reference to money, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and mammon. That is money as an idol, money as a god. You have to choose. You, money is a great servant, I think we all know that, a terrible master. Uh, It'll make your life miserable and you will begin to engage in forms of injustice towards your neighbor if money becomes your master. In 1967, Martin Luther King said this, True compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It is not haphazard and superficial. It comes to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. A true revolution of values will soon look uneasily on the glaring contrast of poverty and wealth. That is, if we're, if we're properly formed, if we're formed by the witness of Scripture, if we're formed by the Holy Spirit, if we're properly formed, we will begin to look with unease upon the glaring contrast of poverty and wealth. This is something that the Hebrew prophets especially called out. That was one of their main messages. At Sinai, we saw this last week, at Sinai, as God made a covenant with Israel, He gave them laws that were designed to prevent that kind of glaring disparity. So that for Israel, every seven years, all debts were canceled. It's a rather remarkable system they had. Every seven years, all debts canceled. And then every 50 years, all land had to go back to its original owners so that the family farm stayed the family farm. The Mosaic vision was not that you would have some huge conglomerates that owned all the land and everybody could just be an employee. And no, the, the idea was that everybody would have their land. And if through a course of a half a century, if that system got messed up, there was the Jubilee year that reset everything. But by the time you get to the 8th century B.C., uh, those laws were being routinely ignored. And that's when the Hebrew prophets stepped onto the stage. They came because, because what was happening in Israel was a profound ignoring of the law, the Torah that was given to Israel at Sinai. They were ignoring it. And so the prophets step onto the scene. Now among the first, maybe the very first, 
of the canonical Old Testament prophets was Amos of Tekoa. He was a farmer, but something compelled him to start writing and performing poems in public. Uh, he was an older contemporary of Isaiah. I mean, they're, they're, they overlap, but Amos comes first. Amos is prophesying to the, you know, the, the northern and southern kingdom. You know about that? You have King Solomon and you have King David. And then you have King Solomon and then there's a split in the kingdom. There was a civil war. There was a disagreement. There was a split. And the northern kingdom was called Israel with its capital in Samaria. Southern kingdom was called Judah with its capital in Jerusalem. But they're both, they're Israelites, but they've split into two kingdoms. Well, Amos of Tekoa is prophesying to the northern kingdom of Israel with its capital in Samaria. And Isaiah comes along about 20 years later. They overlap a little bit. And Isaiah comes along and is prophesying to the southern kingdom in Judah. So what drove this farmer from Tekoa to become an a annoying prophet, I think, probably, to most of the elite in Israel? Well, it was, it was entirely the economic injustice that was being practiced. So let's just dive in. Uh, this will give you just a taste of what, I, what Amos is like. Amos chapter 4, verse 1. Listen to me, you fat cows living in Samaria. This guy is, you know, going to get your attention. Um, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy and who are always calling to your husbands, bring us another drink. <laughs> Man, it paints a picture, right? This is, this is the, the one percenters. This is the wealthy elite living in the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel in Samaria. And Amos just shows them, say, you fat cows, woe unto you, that you crush the needy and you neglect the poor and you just sit around and say, bring me another martini. That's basically what he's saying. Verse 2. The sovereign Lord has sworn by his holiness, the time will come when you will be led away with hooks in your noses. Every last one of you will be dragged away like a fish on a hook. You will be led through the ruins of the wall. You will be thrown from your fortresses, says the Lord. And, I mean, Amos is, is saying this around the year 750. And within 10 years that began to happen, what he prophesies. That is, they began to be, in, northern kingdom was invaded by the, by the northern empire of Assyria, and, they began, and the deportations began in about 10 years. And by 722, all of the people in the northern kingdom had been put into forced exile into Assyria. It came to pass. They lost everything. Uh, look at uh, Amos chapter 5, verse 10. How you hate honest judges. See, the Hebrew prophets say over and over, through their creative and scathing poetry, that an economic system that benefits the rich at the expense of the poor is unsustainable because eventually God will judge it. They all say that. Every single one of them in one way or another. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, etc. All of them say an economic system 
that benefits the rich at the expense and through exploiting the poor, it's unsustainable because eventually it will be judged by God. How you hate honest judges. How you despise people who tell the truth. You trample the poor, stealing their grain through taxes and unfair rent. See, that's Monday stuff. Why would you talk about taxes and taxation policy and rent practice on a, on a, on a, on a Sunday? That's Monday stuff. No, see, you, you can't have that wall. You can't separate it like that. So does God care about things like taxation policy and rent practices? Yes, God's just totally concerned about it. The earth is the Lord's. We saw that last week. That the, the foundational understanding that Israel had concerning economics given to them by God was that the Lord is the landlord of all the planet. That the earth is the Lord's and what is done on his property is his concern. And so he's concerned about, yes, taxes and unfair rent. Therefore, though you build stone houses, you will never live in them. Though you plant lush vineyards, you will never drink wine from them. And it came to pass in a generation. For I know the vast number of your sins and the depth of your rebellions. You oppress good people by taking bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. So those who are smart keep their mouths shut, for it is an evil time. But Amos didn't keep his mouth shut. Was he not smart? I don't know. He was a prophet is what he was. I mean, people knew what was going on. People knew what was going on. They knew it was wrong. They knew it was contrary to the will of God, but they just put their head down. Stay quiet. If you're smart, you stay quiet because, you know, you get in trouble. But, you know, the prophets are called by God and they just they, they can't help themselves. We don't know anything about Amos of Tekoa other than what we have in his collection of poems that we call the book of Amos in the Bible. Uh, we don't really know much of his biography, only what little he tells us. I kind of wonder if Amos got out of this deal alive. I don't know. I mean, you go up to the capital city and start calling the wives of the elite fat cows and, you know, I don't know if that's going to go well for you. Well, those who are smart keep their mouths shut for it's an evil time, but Amos can't shut up. Do what is good and run from evil so that you may live. Then the Lord God of heaven's armies will be your helper just as you've claimed. Because they're always claiming God's on our side as well. You know, do what's right and then God will be on your side. Hate evil and love what is good. Turn your courts into true halls of justice. Perhaps even the Lord God of heaven's armies will have mercy on the remnant of his people. So Amos goes first. Amos is the first of these canonical Hebrew prophets. Uh, a generation later, there'll be one named Micah. And he'll echo much of what's been said here. He'll say it this way. He says, uh, you know what is good, O mortal. O mortal ones, you know what is good and what the Lord has required of you. That you should what? Do justice. What should you love? How should you walk? With God. But Amos is the one that does that first. Um, chapter 5, verse 21. I hate your show and pretense, the hypocrisy of your religious festivals and solemn assemblies. I will not accept your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I won't even notice all your choice peace offerings. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to the music of your harps. 
Yeah, they had great praise and worship teams and all that. Uh, but God says, I hate it. Stop it. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living. The, I'm going to speak about this anachronistically so you get the point, but the prophets didn't rebuke people for not going to church. The prophets rebuked people for going to church and not letting it affect the rest of their life. The prophets didn't rebuke people for going to church on Sunday. They rebuked people for going to church on Sunday and then leaving their faith in the pew when they went out the door and they go into Monday and live as if they don't believe a word of what they'd just been singing and saying about God. Or you could put it this way. uh, The prophets are saying if your worship on Sunday doesn't flow with mighty rivers of justice into Monday, God says, don't even bother. I don't want to hear it. See, that's that thing of integrity. You can't build walls. You can't say, oh, this is my spiritual life. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Over here, I'm doing some business deals and, you know, got to take care of yourself. Got to put yourself first. God says, no, if you're going to do that, don't even bother to sing the praise songs to me because I don't want to hear it. Chapter 8, verse 4. Listen to this. Boy, you you just know he he was just a lovely man, right? Uh, Listen to this, you who robbed the poor. And trample down the needy. You can't wait for church to get over. Well, it's Sabbath day to be over. And the religious festivals to end. So you can get back to cheating the helpless. You measure out grain with dishonest measures. And cheat the buyer with dishonest scales. And you mix the grain you sell with chaff swept from the floor. You know, he's not making this up. He's seen this happen. Then you enslave poor people for one piece of silver or a pair of sandals. He's saying, okay, yeah, you're observant. You keep the Sabbath. But, well, the Sabbath was given as a blessing, as a means of formation, a great leveler. But here, in Amos's day, the people he's directing his prophecy to, the unrighteous rich, just see Sabbath and the, and the festivals as an unwanted interruption into their money-making. They observe the Sabbath, but their heart is completely given over to the idol of greed and the injustice of exploration, and Amos is going to call them out. Um, But the prophets are not opposed to wealth and prosperity. They're not. They're just opposed to the idol of greed and the injustice of economic exploitation. That's what they're opposed to. Uh, Amos Ends, I mean, most of, most of what the book of Amos is like is like these examples I've shown you. That's, that's pretty much the tone and the message of the book throughout its nine chapters. But at the very end, uh, he, he takes a turn. And he envisions a day in the future when Israel will be restored from exile and God's blessing. Well, he, he envisions a righteous prosperity. He closes his, his last poem ends like this. The time will come, says the Lord, when the grain and grapes will grow faster than they can be harvested. Then the terraced vineyards on the hills of Israel will drip with sweet wine. I will bring my exiled people of Israel back from distant lands, and they will rebuild their ruined cities and live in them again. They will plant vineyards and gardens. They will eat their crops and drink their wine. I will firmly plant them there in their own land. 
They will never again be uprooted for the land I have given them. From the land I have given them, says the Lord. So again, I, I want you to see that. That the prophets are not opposed to prosperity. They're just simply opposed to prosperity that is built upon an unjust foundation. All right. That's Amos. Let's take a look at Isaiah. His younger contemporary prophesying in the capital city of Judah in Jerusalem. And Isaiah chapter 3 verse 13. Isaiah 3 verse 13. The Lord takes his place in court. And presents his case against his people. The Lord comes forward to pronounce judgment on the elders and rulers of his people. You have ruined Israel, my vineyard. So the picture is, is that Yahweh is coming to Jerusalem as the highest judge. The chief justice of heaven's supreme court. And Yahweh is there... To pass judgment. He's, he's seated on the bench of judgment. And his judgment is of the elders and the rulers. That is the religious rulers and the civic rulers. That is the priests and the chief priests and the scribes, the Levites, and the kings and the governors. So, so see how it's all together. God's going to judge both the religious leaders and the economic leaders. And his first thing he says, you have ruined my vineyard Israel. This is a motif that Isaiah works with a lot. His idea, the idea is this, that, that Israel is to be unique among the nations because they're God's chosen people. And, and God planted a choice vine. And God wants, God wants Israel to be a vineyard producing the fruit of what? Justice. That's what he wants. He, he wants justice to be produced in his vineyard, Israel, but it's not happening. It's bad grapes. It's injustice. You have ruined Israel, my vineyard. Your houses are filled with things stolen from the poor. This is, this is God's judgment upon the, the priests and the king. And the, the royal court. Okay? Now, when Yahweh says your house is filled with things stolen from the poor, don't, don't get the idea that the priests and the king are sneaking around at night burglarizing poor people's houses. Because the poor people don't have anything anyway. What he's saying is the whole way you arrange this system is designed so that it all flows to you. And you think that's just fine. You think that's okay. God says, no, you're stealing from the poor. You're, you've arranged a system where you get rich, you get rich, you get rich, and they stay poor, they stay poor. God says, your houses are filled with the things that have been stolen from the poor. How dare you crush my people, grinding the faces of the poor into the dust, demands the Lord, the Lord of heaven's armies. Wow. Isaiah 5 continues this theme. What sorrow for you who buy up house after house and field after field until everyone is evicted and you live alone in the land. But I have heard the Lord of heaven's armies swear a solemn oath. Many houses will stand deserted. 
even beautiful mansions will be empty. So woe unto you who, what does he say? Buy up house after house and field after field until everybody's evicted. Now, now why, why is somebody able to buy up house after house after house, field after field after field? Why? Because the people are in debt. And they have no choice. And they have to sell the family farm to these elite rich. And eventually they own it all. Just like, just like Pharaoh did. Remember, that's what Pharaoh did. That's what, so, so instead of being a vision of justice, a vineyard producing justice, what is Israel starting to look like? Egypt. They've gone back to Egypt in their heart. They're recreating Egypt in Israel. And he says, woe unto you. The only way that that can happen is buying up field after field and, and, and some guy owns it. One guy owns it all and then the rest are just poor, you know, subsistence tenant farmers. The only way that can happen is they're not practicing the year of debt cancellation every seven years. They're not practicing the jubilee that would restore the family farms. And the prophets are not going to let them get away with that. The prophets are going to call them out. Of course, remember, the tradition is, the Jewish tradition is, is that eventually, in the days of King Manasseh, Isaiah was sawn in two. So the prophets that call out the elite for economic injustice usually end up, you know, something like that. Sawn asunder, it says. All right, well, let's, uh, let's finish this up. Let's go, let's go to the last of the prophets. Last book of the Old Testament of Malachi. Malachi 3. Look, I am sending my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Of course, this gets quoted in the New Testament. Mark, the first chapter, the first two verses. This gets quoted because it's a reference to John the Baptist. Look, I am sending my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Then the Lord you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. That's Messiah. The Lord you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you seek for so earnestly is surely coming, says the Lord of heaven's army. And then it goes on, verse 5. At that time, I will put you on trial. Again, this is the same motif that Isaiah has. Is that Yes, the Lord is coming, his Messiah is coming, but the Messiah will bring a, a judgment. There will be a trial. At that time, I will put you on trial. I am eager to witness against all sorcerers and adulterers and liars. Those are kind of like more conventional sinners as we think of them. I will speak against those who cheat employees out of their wages, who oppress widows and orphans, or who deprive the foreigners living among them, among you of justice. For these people do not fear me, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So this is a recurring theme. The widows and the orphans, because they're the vulnerable ones, they can be easily taken advantage of. And who else? The immigrant laborers who have come to Israel because they're looking for something better. But immigrant laborers are always uh, under duress, under threat of exploitation. They're easy to take advantage of and to cheat. And they're doing it in Malachi's day. And, and, but they're still, they're still really religiously observant. They still go to church. They still go to synagogue. They still practice the festivals. They still do all of that. And yet their Monday hasn't been transformed by their Sunday. And so Malachi calls it out. Verse 6. I am the Lord and I do not change. That is why you descendants of Jacob are not already destroyed. 
Ever since the days of your ancestors, you have scorned my decrees and failed to obey them. Now return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of heaven's armies. But you ask, how can we return when we've never gone away? They, they, won't, own up, they won't own up to it. The prophet is saying, you need to come back to God. We, 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 we're okay. We're okay. We, we go to church. We go to synagogue. We keep Passover. We do all the things we're supposed to do. How can we return when we haven't gone away? <clears throat> Verse 8. Should people cheat God? Yet you have cheated me. But you ask, what do you mean? When did we ever cheat you? You have cheated me of tithes and offerings due to me. So he's they're talking about money again. You've cheated me of the tithes and offerings due to me. You were under a curse. For your whole nation has been cheating me. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse so there will be enough food in my temple. If you do... If you do. So now, now, you see, now you're going to see the, the heart of God. And again, I stress, the prophets are not against wealth and prosperity. They're against injustice and idolatry. That's what they're against. If you do, says the Lord of heaven's armies, this is what's going to happen. I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great, you won't have enough room to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test. Your crops will be abundant, for I will guard them from insects and disease. Your grapes will not fall from the vine before they are ripe, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Then all nations will call you blessed, for your land will be such a delight, says the Lord of heaven's armies. All right, this brings us to the end of the Old Testament. And next Sunday, we're going to look at what Jesus has to say about money. How many of you suppose maybe Jesus has something to say about money? Jesus has a lot to say about money. Uh, Jesus wants us to be free from greed. Jesus wants us to be generous. Jesus wants us to seek economic justice for the poor among us. And Jesus wants us to learn to trust God and thereby be liberated from financial anxiety. Because there's nothing that people worry about more than their finances. That and sickness. Those are the two big ones. Jesus wants you to be free from financial anxiety. Think about when, when people were with Jesus. See, Jesus isn't against abundance because when people were with Jesus, there was always abundance. I mean, if you just, if you just stay with Jesus, he's going to challenge you. He's not going to let you have money as an idol. He's going to stress that the single greatest hindrance to full participation in the kingdom of God is economic self-interest. But he also promises you that God will take care of you. So think about the people that are with Jesus. There's always a, it's just, it's, they're always in the realm of abundance when they're with Jesus. The wine doesn't run out. The fish and loaves are multiplied. And Jesus even paid Peter's taxes. Amen. There's always enough when we're with Jesus. So Jesus is going to teach us that we don't have to worry about money because if we trust God, God will take care of us. Amen.